Hello, fellow Rebel Capitals. Hope you're well. I'm here with my good buddy, Bob Murphy, and we are going to discuss a few things. We're going to debate a few things. This is going to be a fantastic conversation. We're going to get into the Fed. We're going to get into interest rates, inflation, sound money. Does it even make a difference? Should we should we go to a gold standard or a Bitcoin standard, or would we end up right back where we are right now <laughs> with, with high rates of inflation and massive government infringing on our liberties and our freedom. So Bob, thanks for joining me today, buddy. Happy holidays, by the way. Oh, thanks. Same to you, George. Glad to be here. Okay. Now I listened to a podcast that you did on the human action uh, or uh, an episode of the human action podcast mm-hmm. where you went over a debate that you had with this gentleman, uh, Dean, what was his last name? Baker. Dean Baker. Yeah, and uh, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. And if you want to summarize that briefly, and what I want to start off with before we kind of get into our, our differences is why these mainstream economists, from a psychological standpoint, why is it so difficult for them to acknowledge that the market might know something that they don't? You know, when Dean was sitting there saying that he completely ignores the yield curve because it, he, he likes to focus on causation, not correlation, you know, <laughs> and it's like I'm sitting there screaming into my in my phone, you know, listening to the podcast saying, dude, don't you realize that the market is giving you a signal right here? The, it, it, this is not correlation. It's the market giving you a signal as far as what it expects a future inflation or a growth to be. And if we've got this massive inversion in the curve, it, it's not just some coincidence. It's the market saying it expects a recession. But anyway, can you uh, summarize that debate that you had, which I thought was fantastic? Okay, great. Uh, thank you. Uh, so, so sure. Yeah. So for people don't know, Dean Baker, he's, uh, I joked with him because he's got a good sense of humor among other things. I said, he's the poor man's Krugman. He thought that. Was funny. <laughs> so he's, you know, he's a, a Keynesian, uh, been around the block for a while. Uh, you know, his, his views are very progressive in, in Keynesian, but uh, he's he's intellectually honest, okay. Yeah, so I'm, yeah. I'm not saying he doesn't have blind spots, but in several points, he going back over the years, he I have seen him admit, okay, yeah, I overstepped here, but what I'm saying is blah blah blah. Whereas Krugman doesn't do stuff like that typically. Okay, so the specific dispute that we had is we were asked to talk about whether there's going to be a soft or a hard landing in 2024, and so Dean, you know, gave his perspective, then I gave mine, and I said, uh, you know, the the biggest single metric I can point to is the inverted yield curve, which since 1960 uh, has basically never been wrong, either with a false positive or false negative. There's one borderline case where it's signaled a recession that didn't quite qualify, but growth did slow way down to mid sixties. Yeah. So, um, and then, and and so then we've, and we've had, you know, last 18 months or whatever, like the, one of the most deeply inverted yield curves, you know, on record. And so I was just saying among other things, you know, there's going to be a huge asterisk going forward if there's not a bad recession following this. And, um, and then as you say, George, and I had other points I made too, but that was, and also I linked it to the Austrian theory of the business cycle. So it's, you know, it, it fits with my worldview. And I just saw that, okay, that's a particular metric, like to operationalize the qualitative story that guys like Mises and Hayek told about what causes a business cycle, a market economy. So then, as you say, Dean's response to that, once he had the floor back, was to say, well, you know, that's just core, you know, correlation looking at lines on a chart or something. I'm looking around in the real world, you know, consumer spending's fine. I don't see, and he just started t- ticking off like the components of GDP yeah. in terms yeah. of the accounting equation, 
like net exports it, it, seem okay. As if there's da, 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 da. nothing yeah. possible that the market could see if he doesn't see it. That, that's it, what was frustrating me so much. Yeah. And so my response, I'll say one thing and then I'll let you, it was to say, like, I, I get where he's coming from. And, and yes, in a, like a sort of a vacuum philosophical sense, just if you saw some correlations, but you had no underlying theory of the mechanism. But I do. My, my theory was the Fed intervened in the banking system. They flooded the market with cheap credit. That's partly, you know, that's what would cause the inflation we saw or contributed to it. And then they slammed on the brakes. M2 is down four and a half percent. Like the last time it was that much of a steep fall was in the early 30s. Okay. So there's a lot of stuff going on that, you know, given my worldview would would cause this. And then the last, you know, one of the points I made was the analogy I said, it'd be like if I if I saw you drink a vial of poison and I said, whoa, two hours from now, you're not going to be in good shape. <laughs> and then you went, point to the cells in my body. Show me what's happening. Right, say, right. Well, your body's really complex and I'm not, I can't identify that. I'm just telling you, I know drinking a bunch of poison is not going to be good for you <laughs> going forward. And so likewise, what policies we've seen, uh, you know, it's not good. And some of the metrics that historically have gone hand in hand with it, you know, are showing, you know, flashing red. Like you say, Let, last thing I'll say, Georgia is, What's amazing to me, not just Dean, but in general, there's this whole thing on Twitter. I'm sure you've seen it where all these trained economists are mocking the average person for thinking the economy is in bad shape when, no, you're just wrong. No, you're better off now than you were before. You're an idiot. Look at, the, look at these, these data points. Right. So you're all wrong. They call it a vibe session that, no, the economy's great. It's just there's a bad vibe because the media is out for Joe Biden or something. Like Fox News has tricked everyone to think the economy's in bad shape, which so anyway, that's kind of where we are. Yeah, it's just, I don't know if you read that Thomas Sowell book, and I, I it was probably, what was the name of Intellectuals? Was it Intellectuals in Society or something like that? I know which one you mean, and I, yeah, I might say that quote wrong. But he goes into what he believes is the psychology behind central planning, why we should have central planners. And it made a lot of sense to me. He says these people, like the Krugman types, let's say, or maybe mm -hmm. this dean, you know, I would assume that they have their PhD from some you know, Harvard or Yale or something like that, some big league school. And he says, you've got to put yourself in their position. They've been told since they were like in first grade that they're smarter than everybody else. Mm -hmm. And they, they live basically in this bubble where they believe that that they themselves and everyone else around them that's been chosen to go to these Ivy League schools and participate in these PhD programs, well, they're, they get chosen for this because they are smarter than everyone else. So if you grow up believing that, if that's your worldview, even if you're you know someone that uh, has the best intentions of society, you sit there and look at the markets and you're like, wait a minute, the, the market is full of these people. They don't have their PhD from Harvard in mm -hmm. economics. You know, they're just a bunch of dumb rubes out there buying the long end of the yield curve. So there's nothing that they could possibly know that I don't know. And it seems like that was kind of the, I, the, the position that he was coming from. Do you see that with a lot of, uh, I don't want to, I call them your peers, <laughs> but a, a lot of the, the, the guys and a lot of these economists that gravitate toward uh, this belief that central planning is, is what we need. Do you think that might explain some of it? It definitely explains some of it. Also, I think they just, they're, um, they really don't appreciate the complexity of the market economy and how difficult it would be to steer it. Like there's, there's a quick anecdote. When I was in grad school, uh, one of my 
uh, classmates, he, real sharp guy. You know, he's one of our the better students in our in our uh, cohort, whatever you want to call it. And I mentioned to him about the the central planning debate and how like, yeah, I thought that the you know the Austrians won that, and he had been taught that no, the you know the mainstream economists had shown that socialism was at least possible in principle. And he said, because, you know, they could just solve the equations and whatever the competitive decentralized outcome would be, whatever the market would do, the socialists could just do that, or they could do something that they thought was better. So, you know what I mean? Like that was his quick, you know, two second demonstration that of course socialism is better in principle because it could just mimic the market if it wanted to, whereas the market can't mimic socialism because nobody's in charge. Like the market's just going to do whatever's profitable whereas socialism could do that, or it could do something and just throwing out, well, how would you even know what the most profitable market outcome would be without having those institutions in place? It's yeah. not, it's a lot harder in the real world than just writing a model. It's like, Oh, here's the production function. Here's the household budget constraint. And I, you know, take the first derivative and set it to zero, which is what in his mind meant finding the market outcome. So I think that's yeah. part of it. Just the gulf. They just don't appreciate how, you know, fantastically complex an issue this is a system I, I think the way thomas Sowell described that is he would talk about the combined intelligence of people that are maybe less intelligent that that's what mm. they don't appreciate he says you know that that plumber out there might have a hundred iq where krugman or dean might have a, a 130 or 40 iq something like that but if you take the combined intelligence of all the plumbers out there and what they know about plumbing it's going to vastly exceed anything that Paul Krugman knows, uh, just to use that as an example. And I think that might be what they're underappreciating as well. Yeah. And, and you know, we're here uh, and here, I think Sol acknowledges he's borrowed heavily from Hayek that, uh, you know, that was one of Hayek's main points about like the decentralized oh, nature okay. of, of knowledge, like boots on the ground. So even if we stipulate that, yeah, the central planners, let's say they're super intelligent, if they don't have the information at their disposal, how can they act on that right and so there's all this you know what could be called dispersed information all over the place the plumber you know something trivial to take your example the plumber shows up he has to look around the house and figure out oh that's what's causing that issue the guy in washington coming up with a five-year plan couldn't possibly know that how would he get that information and that's one of the things that prices do is they communicate relevant information around the system so everybody can respond to it exactly and i think that's why the yield curve inverts I, I see my view on the yield curve is that uh, I, I agree with what you're saying, kind of the boom bust cycle there. But I think it's also has a lot to do with these financial insiders figuring out uh, that, that we're getting closer to that bust phase of the cycle mm -hmm. because they have, uh, I would call it insider information, but not illegal insider information. Mm -hmm. It's just they have access to all this boots on the ground intel. And to take it to an extreme, I, I use the example of uh, of when, uh, you know, if you buy kind of the lab leak theory, that occurred in 2019, right around August. And uh, this is right when the yield curve inverted. So I thought, I just, as a thought experiment, I'm like, well, put yourself in the position of Paul Tudor Jones, as an mm -hmm. example, uh, because he came out on CNBC early in January and was talking about, you know, hey, hey guys, this is a really, really, really big deal. When at that time, the mainstream media was just kind of brushing it off. And I thought, you know what, if I'm Paul Tudor Jones and I'm one of these financial insiders and, I, you know, that scientist in Wuhan, as an example, is going to go to his local politician and that local politician is going to, you know, that intel is going to go up the, the chain of command until it gets to one of the big bankers in China 
And then it's going to get to some of the big bankers in uh, in New York or you know globally in the Eurodollar system. And these guys are going to be buddies with Paul Tudor Jones. And then Paul Tudor Jones is going to send his guy out to Wuhan specifically to talk to this scientist and find out, okay, what is going on? Tell me, you know, <laughs> give, give, give me the intel here. And then his guy is going to report to him and then he's going to look at this and this, you know, back in August, let's say, uh, or, or uh, November of 2019. And what is he going to do from a financial standpoint? He's going to buy the long end of the curve because he knows that likely the Fed is going to have to drop rates or rates are going to come down because you're going to have this flight to safety. And therefore, you know, that's where he's going to get the most juice as far as the most bang for his buck, because if interest rates go down, you know, that's going to impact prices at the long end of the curve to a much more significant degree. So you take it back to 2006 and, you know, we can take the tinfoil hat off there. But if you go back to 2006, I think it's the exact same thing. All these financial insiders, they had the intel that mortgage-backed securities were going to blow up. They, they, they knew that, you know, it wasn't just Peter Schiff out there. Mm-hmm. It was, uh, you know, the Larry Fink types, or, uh, you know, these big hedge fund managers that you never hear about, they're the ones that are out there buying the long end of the curve, either to hedge their book or just to get that capital appreciation. And I think that combined with the Fed increasing rates, and maybe they buy even more when the Fed does increase rates, I think that's why we see this inversion. I think that's why it has such a good track record because it's based largely on insider information. Yeah, I think you're right. And and I would... Yes, what you're saying is is uh, very sympathetic or, or complimentary to the view I was coming around because I noticed they'll be just walking through something real fast here. My the more I thought through what my position was, the more like it was became so obvious. I almost thought it was trivial because again, what we were, Dean and I were arguing about was harder soft landing in 2024. And so then when I was recording my commentary on that exchange, you know, for the Human Action Podcast, I gave myself uh, a, a little caveat to say, hey, just folks, just to be clear. Strictly speaking, the yield curve right now is still inverted. And so the historical pattern, the curve uninverts before the recession hits. So I said, strictly speaking, if we go through all of 2024 and the yield curve has stays inverted, it's not that the, you know, like you could say I was wrong, but my mistake was thinking it was going to snap back by that point. It's not that the pattern would have been violated. And it's just that I thought, okay, because the economy starts going into a tailspin, the Fed sees that and then starts cutting short rates. And then that's what uninverted. And so it, you know, so it lines up with what you're saying. It's almost like once you think through the pattern, why would this happen? Like once you're at a point where it is inverted, clearly, if a recession's coming, people will start noticing, you know, seeing the data, the early indicators, and the Fed would start cutting short rates beforehand. So of course you're going to see the thing uninvert before the recession hits. That's right. You know, so it, like I said, and once you state it like that, it's almost so trivial. It's like, well, of course, it's almost. It's almost like saying unemployment goes up when there's a recession. Like, well, yeah, that's kind of <laughs> so. Yeah. And another thing I'd point out too, uh, Bob, and, and you referenced it there, mm-hmm. it's always because of a bull steepener. And, and you know, what we call bull steepener is just the short end coming down. And that's what uninverts the curve as opposed to the long end going up. Right. And I, I've, I've told people that, that this, I have the exact same view that you do on the probabilities of a hard landing. But I told people that I will have to reevaluate my base case and reevaluate the, the the curve itself and what it's telling me if we have an uninversion from a bear steepener. So as an example, if the, the Fed, let's just say, keeps rates at 
And if going into 2024, we see the 10-year treasury go from 3.9% up to, let's just say, 65 mm-hmm. or 7%, something like that. So now we've got an uninversion, but it's a bear steepener, not a bull steepener. And then I would have to reevaluate because then what the long end of the curve is telling me and all the financial insiders is that they're no longer worried about a recession. Right. And now they're looking at, at future growth and inflation expectations being much higher than where the Fed's got the overnight rate. Yes, I agree with you entirely on that. And that's also, it's funny, on the, on the front end, like when the yield curve first inverts, people not knowing um, what moves what also shows, like it, it distinguishes like the Keynesian view from the Austrian on this one. So Krugman, for example, say, oh, the reason it inverts is people see um, a recession coming and they lower their long-term expectations. So the, the, you know, the 10 year drops below the three month. And I would just show them the data and say, no, that's not what happens. The reason it initially inverts is because the short rate shoots above the long run does maybe start coming down, but historically like going in the 08 and whatever, the short rate first zooms up and then the 10 year starts coming down. And so that's why to me, it, it dovetails nicely with the Austrian theory. What like, it's not just that recessions randomly hit the economy and it's purely a game of anticipation and the yield curve is just giving us, you know, inside information and into what the the people on the boots on the ground are seeing. To me, you know, the policies, and I think we're going to, you know, argue about this in a minute, George, about how much influence does the Fed have. But yeah. if you do buy into that story, it, it totally fits in with the Austrian view that like when the Fed expands, it's going to lower short rates more and then higher rates because of inflation expectations. So that's why you're going to have a, you know, an upward sloping curve in a boom, and then when they slam on the brakes, the short rate, you know, zooms up and then pretty soon a bust happens. So anyway, it all fits nicely. But yeah, that I think people need to be careful and check which end of the curve is moving to either invert it or then uninvert it because that really makes, you know, matters a lot. Huge difference. And I would also add, I, I went back and did the research and I cannot find a time where we had a bear steepener to an, uh, to it. Right. Now, I, I've seen the curve, I don't know what you want to call it, disinvert. Uh, not not a complete uninversion, mm-hmm. but but where the delta is reduced by the long end going up. Mm-hmm. But I've yet to see something, you know, to your point, going back to 1950 or 1960, where we had an inversion and then we had an uninversion to where we're off to the races uh, as a result of a bear steepener. I've never seen it. It's always the bull steepener. It's always the Fed seeing the stuff hitting the fan. And just being reactionary, dropping rates, which, by the way, drops the long end as well. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not just the long end stays and the Fed drops. It's the Fed drops and then the long end starts to come down further. It's just the Fed drops more than the long end is coming down. So anyway, let's get on to the next topic here, uh, Bob. Let me check my notes here. And um, okay, so... Let, let's go into this. This is something that I have really wrestled with, and it's the Austrian definition of inflation. Mm-hmm. And you guys have to forgive me here. I'm looking down from my cameras, reading my notes here. So the, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but the Austrian definition of inflation is an expansion of the money supply. And this is basically because although they would acknowledge that just because you increase the money supply, it doesn't necessarily mean that prices go up. It's just that prices are higher than they otherwise would have been. So this explains the 1800s as an example, when we had 
M2 money supply go up, uh, they would say, okay, right. And we had a price deflation, but prices would have gone down a lot further if we would have been able to keep the money supply to constant. Mm -hmm. Am I articulating the view correctly? And um, it, let's start there. And if I am, then I'll go on. Okay. Yeah, sure. So yes. Um, and then depending on the context, when we say money supply, that could also include actually, and it probably would, uh, banks issuing money in the, in the sense of demand deposits, like so M1, for example, or, or M2 even. Okay. So that's, that's part of the, the explanation. And yeah, the critical thing, the reason the Austrians are real sticklers for that is, is, and Mises wrote about this a lot that they were saying, you know, in the early 1900s, that was just what people meant by inflation, like inflating the money stock, you know, a right. swelling of that. That's, you know, what, where the term came from. And then, of course, yes, that typically went hand in hand with large price increases, particularly in you know cases of hyperinflation. That's clearly what happened. Yeah. Um, and but then over the course of the 20th century, the definition kind of mer or morphed so that nowadays when people say inflation, they think that what that means is, oh, everything's getting more expensive when I go to the store. And Mises thought that was a pernicious and intentional shift that now we're just looking at the symptoms. So it's hard, you know, who are we going to blame? Oh, it's OPEC. Oh, it's the greedy unions, not it's, the, you know, the government and the central bank flooding the market with new money. And so it made it harder to pin the blame on what's causing this if you shifted it to the symptoms. So that's kind of the standard Austrian take on that stuff. Okay. So I think my main point of contention here is that I agree that an increase in the money supply can contribute to prices going up or being higher than they otherwise would have been. But it, it it doesn't always work out that way. And therefore, I don't think it can be a definition. Because if something is a definition, then it means that this is what happens 100% of the time. And so, and I think people get into trouble there. Uh, because, and we'll discuss this later when we talk about you know sound money and what will really advance the movement of, of freedom, liberty, and free market capitalism. But, but that, that's kind of where I pause and I say, wait a minute, guys, you know, and I've modeled it on my whiteboard and tell me if you agree or disagree. And what I did is I, I imagined that we had a factory with uh, excess capacity. And so they go to the bank to get a loan. And let's say initially the bank can just has $5 because there's no fractional reserve banking mm -hmm. as an example. And so the bank lends them that $5 and they can create X amount of widgets with their excess capacity. And then they go ahead and pay back the loan. Well, you didn't increase the money supply and you didn't decrease it because, you know, they're just basically lending base money. And then I imagined if we had fractional reserve lending and that widget factory had the capacity for to borrow $10 and create twice as many widgets. Now what's happening is the banking system is creating money out of thin air. Uh, mm -hmm. Was it fiduciary media? I think mm -hmm. is, is what the correct Austrian term would be. And so they're creating this out of thin air. And this, yes, it absolutely increases the money supply. And I think their argument would be it impacts interest rates and it does all these negative things that might lead to a boom bust cycle. But then when I, I, I say, okay, let's, let's shelf that for a moment. Uh, and then we get back to just the transaction between the bank and the widget maker. Okay, now he increases goods and services even more than he otherwise would have because he's able to utilize that spare capacity in his factory to create more widgets by borrowing $10 instead of $5. 
And then at the end of this, you know, he starts selling his widgets and his additional goods and services. And then he pays back the $10. And if that was the only transaction, now M2 money or the, the money supply in total goes back down to what it was originally because the money supply was increased, but then it was decreased when the loan was paid off. But now as a result, society has twice as many goods and services, which you could argue would result in prices going down. So in that little hypothetical thought experiment, I think you could argue how prices were actually lower than they otherwise would have been by creating that fiduciary media to begin with. Now, I know it always, it, it, this is a thought experiment and it, always, it doesn't always work out that way. And it's a combination of all these things and thousands and millions of variables. But again, assuming that that can play out, I, that's where I struggle with uh, labeling something a definition, because mm -hmm. in my mind, that means that it's happening 100% of the time. Hopefully that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. So let me break that up into two, two uh, components. So in the first one about, does it make sense to define inflation as an expansion in the quantity of money, you know, and again, possibly including bank credit, like a broad definition, what do we mean by the money stock? Um, if it doesn't necessarily always lead to higher prices, other things equal, I would just say, well, if that's the way you're thinking, it sounds like what, you know, maybe you just want to define inflation then as a rise in prices. Yeah, which I think is, that would know, be more is, helpful. I'm going to do that, but uh, I'm just like, you know, you could say, what's the definition of a sniper rifle? And you say, well, sometimes though someone could get shot with it and they don't die. That doesn't affect like what the definition of a sniper rifle is. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. um, now it does affect the definition of what death is or, you know, assassination or something. So there, I'm just saying, if if you're saying, no, I want my definition to always mean a rise in prices, well then, yeah, you should just, that's what you should use the word inflation for. If that's what you, you know, you want, I'm just saying the Austrians think, you know, they have their reasons for it. Cause they, think I just think by, by using it as a definition, that's what people assume is right. that it's 100% of the time. Therefore yeah. this may uh, lead them to uh, false conclusions. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, they got this with my work. I try to just avoid ambiguity. I say, monetary inflation or price inflation like i have to put the the word in front of the word you know just just to distinguish what i mean because you're right just to say inflation at this point it's too confusing yeah because too many people think it means one thing or the other okay but as far as your substantive point uh i so here i think it best that would work for one cycle because if we were in a world where you had 100 reserve banking whether that's a good thing or not but just like let's think through the logic of that then yeah, you have this factory with idle capacity. It's not that it would just sit there for years on end idle in a world of you know hard money, uh, no fractional reserve banking. Prices would quickly adjust such that now it became profitable to use it, even if there was like a bankruptcy proceeding and it got it had to get transferred from those owners over to somebody else. But in other words, if it made sense in the structure of production for that factory to be operating, I think that would happen more quickly. The reason we see these prolonged periods in reality of idle capacity, high unemployment or whatever is precisely because we have fractional reserve banking if the Austrians are right. And that's what's causing these massive boom busts. So that in your story, yes, if the if the bank expands credit and that gets the factory up and running, it's actually distorting the overall structure of production. It's not sustainable. And so then down the road, there's going to be a crash with more Why idle Why is that resources. not sustainable? What's that? Why is that not sustainable? Because if, if you're saying the only reason the only thing that could make that factory get up and running is if we print more money. No, 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 not, that's not the only thing it could get up and running with the $5, but mm -hmm. 
but it right. could be even more efficient and produce even more goods and services if it had ten dollars. Okay, so again, and, and then by and then when you pay off the loan, mm-hmm. then it the entire money supply goes right back to five dollars where it began. Right. So I'm saying you could imagine a baseline case where there is no monetary expansion and instead of them needing $10 to get it going, just other prices come down like the prices of inputs or something like if wages have to fall or something happens so that they could get going. And so if you're going to keep, you know, refining the example and say, no, let's stipulate the only way, you know, these factories are going to get up and running is if the banks expand credit and push interest rates down then to a standard Austrian, at least in the Misesian tradition, they're going to say, okay, that's a signal that they're actually not supposed to be doing that. You're sucking them into unsustainable lines if like normal fundamental forces don't allow that. And again, all this stuff kind of feeds on itself, given that we're in a regime where you know, the, the banks do expand credit, it makes it easier for wages to be, quote, sticky. They, they don't come down fast because everyone kind of assumes, oh, or the central bank's going to come to the rescue. So a lot of this stuff, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy that, oh, no, we, we have to have you know fractured reserve banking. Otherwise, we're just going to be stuck like this in a rut for two years. That's partly because people think that's the regime we're in, that if they actually thought, no, we're not getting extra credit, you know, workers, if you don't reduce your wage demands, you're just not going to work. Then and, and you see like in the early 1920s, um, prices came down really fast, much more rapidly than in the early 30s. And that's yeah, partly yeah. why we don't study about the Great Depression of the 20s. It was pretty a bad deflation, but boom, they got through it pretty quickly because the federal government sat back and did nothing. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. It's just going back to that, I, I think that th- there's several instances mm-hmm. where you could imagine a, a world or a transaction where at the end of the, let's say, six months, mm-hmm. uh, that we had more goods and services, but money supply didn't increase uh, because you're increasing money supply, then decreasing it when that loan gets paid back. It, it versus versus, I, and I think this is another big problem that, that that people have out there is they don't differentiate between green pieces of paper or gold coins or an extension of bank credit, where those th- are way way different. And this from the standpoint of if if that uh, if I lend if I'm the bank, and if I have uh, let's say ten one dollar bills, and I give them to that widget that factory owner, then he I have not increased the money supply. And if he gives me those ten dollars of those ten one dollar bills back when he pays off the loan, the money supply is still the same. Whereas if let's just say we start with zero, mm-hmm. and then if I'm a bank, I extend him ten dollars in credit. Now all of a sudden I've increased the money supply by ten dollars, and then when he pays it back, he's decreased it back right back down to zero to where it began. So th- 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 I think that's a huge, huge, huge uh, distinction that needs to be made. You can't just say how much money is there. You can't just say how many dollars are there, how many currency units, it, how many currency units are there looking at a pie chart and what percentage of that was lent into existence and what percentage of that is was not lent into existence. And, and that, that, that that's a really big deal, in my opinion. I agree. It's a big deal. Yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of the, the heart of you know, Mises when he was classifying types of money. Yeah, he made a big distinction. He called it uh, money substitutes. Or he's a money in the broader sense versus in the narrow, and but but the reason he did that was because in his mind that's that was the key to understanding the business cycle. That he said it was when banks expanded. So in terms of the total money supply, when that proportion in that pie chart grows of money that's coming through creation via bank lending, that's setting you up for an unsustainable 
boom. So, I mean, obviously you, you can disagree with that, but that's, that's where he was coming from. So to get in your framework, I would say, yes, during the expansionary phase, you got a bunch of idle resources, banks engage in fractional reserve banking. Those businesses are able now to go hire workers, you know, who before were sitting at home and now they come into the factory, the factory starts humming. Whereas before it sat idle, more stuff is being produced. However you want to measure it clearly, um, but then I would say that's an unsustainable boom. And then once they why is that unsustainable, back, Bob? That that's that's yeah. what I'm missing. Okay, well let me just I'll just finish strange thought and then we can circle back. Sure, so sure. then once so I agree. So in that period, you might say there's no reason that uh, CPI should have gone up. That yes, the banks expanded the quantity of money, but look at real output has expanded either the same or even possibly higher. And real output could exceed the money yeah. supply growth. Yes, Therefore, prices were lower than they otherwise would have been. Right. So I I could agree with you on that. But then I would just say, okay, but then there's going to be a reckoning once the banks, you know, tighten it and the people have to pay the loans back and the money supply shrinks, then, you know, that that's what causes the recession. Okay. So but, that's, but if the that's, money supply shrinks, you've got more goods and services, then wouldn't the, 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 the price of that stuff go down uh, at the same pace? You, you see what I'm saying there? Because if you've got more goods and services, then mm-hmm. price is going to go down all okay, being but, equal. But I'm referring when we say goods and services, I'm thinking of the flow, right? So during the expansionary period, everyone comes into work. You know, unemployed workers get sucked back into having jobs. Factories yep. start humming. But then when the when the banks tighten and the loans get paid back, then real activity plummets. That now that's that's what that's a recession is in my, you know my framework. That's what causes a recession. You know, see, I see a little difference. Plummets. I think that velocity to, could increase to the point where those loans are get, still getting paid back but it didn't decrease in economic activity. Okay. So yes, if that happened, then I agree with you. I guess we just disagree on the mechanisms of what causes a typical boom bust. So what you've described to me is exactly the textbook. This is the kind of thing Mises said is what causes a first an unsustainable boom and then a crash. So do we want to talk about why would it be unsustainable? Sure. Okay. So here, um, you know, the standard, story is that just like we talked about earlier, how, you know, prices communicate information and there can't be a central planner that just isn't going to work no matter how smart they are. There's too much stuff going on. Uh, in the Austrian view, one of the key roles or functions of interest rates is it helps coordinate production over time. And so, you know, at any given moment, there's all kinds of stuff that we could be cranking out and there, you know, you could do uh, m- making more, factories and drill presses and things like that, or making more television sets and movie theaters. And that matters, right? The composition of the types of things we're cranking out. It's not just what's real GDP, but like the composition in terms of long run. And so if the households, you know, people are very far sighted, they want to save a lot because, oh, I'm willing to reduce my consumption now so that we can enjoy our retirement and go, you know, go to Europe or whatever down the road, or we got a kid that just got born and we want to have money to send them to college in 18 years the way those household decisions sort of get translated into physical structure of production in the Austrian story is the household save more that pulls down interest rates that gives a green light to entrepreneurs to engage in longer projects, right? Cause the net present value, yeah. a project that you got to put in a lot on the front end and it takes a long time for the, you know, re- fruit to be, to come out at a lower interest rate, you know, that has a higher net present value. So that a sense the interest rate penalizes projects for being too long-term and a lower rate gives a green light as long as it's you know sufficiently productive in the aggregate. And so the standard story is that what happens when there when there's fractional reserve banking and the banks expand credit, it pushes down interest rates 
below the level they really ought to be. And so now that it's giving a false green light. And so entrepreneurs start too many long-term projects and there's just not enough real saving to get them all over the finish line. Right. And so at some point there's going to be a crisis and beforehand you start seeing bottlenecks of, you know, price surges and then the banks get skittish and then they tighten. And then that's, you know, what causes the timing of the crash. But the idea is there's an underlying real mismatch. There's just not enough, you know, like a, a goofy example is like if, if the factory was just cranking out all kinds of hammers, but there wasn't a factory somewhere else cranking out nails. Like there's a sense in which, oh yeah, output's really high, but there's a fundamental imbalance and eventually that's going to be a problem, right? So that's a, a silly example, but that's the kind of thing I mean that it's not just looking at the flow of output, but the composition, everything kind of has to fit together. And in the Austrian story, interest rates help coordinate that in the real world. And so if you distort that, if, if the interest rate's supposed to be 5% and the banks push it down to 2%, that might seem good and oh, that's going to spur production and help reduce unemployment, but you're setting, sowing the seeds of a, of a crash down the road. That's the, that's the idea. Right. But I, I, I don't know that an increase in the money supply would lead to lower interest rates. Uh, it, it could, I, I think that view assumes that money is a commodity that has a restricted supply where if money is, is not a commodity that is constrained by supply whatsoever, if the only constraint on money or the amount of money is productivity, uh, then I, and I don't think that an increase in the money supply would necessarily lead to lower short-term interest rates. And a, another example I would give is if you just look at M2 money supply or, or even base money for that matter, I don't think it holds any bearing whatsoever on interest rates. If you look at charts, just going back, you know, a hundred years or, or whatever it is, I, I don't know where you could find a correlation between the two. Okay. So uh, first is sort of like armchair a priori reasoning where they're coming from is to say by construction, we're talking about a case where, you know, you've got this original equilibrium and then we're going to disturb that by allowing the banks to extend more credit. And so the idea is whatever the interest rate was at first, you know, there was a certain demand for loanable, you know, for the funds. And then if the banks want businesses to borrow more by, you know, bringing more money into existence, by creating it through the act of making more loans, other things equal, they have to lower the, the asking price. They have to lower right. the price to induce more. So that's the sense in which almost by definition, interest rates have to be lower just to get the system, you know, to get that thought process or thought experiment up and running to get businesses to borrow more than they did yesterday before the banks expanded credit. Right. But I think it goes back to inflation and growth expectations, because if growth expectations are higher, uh, then that means that the borrower, uh, the widget maker, sees more of an opportunity in the future for uh, the economy, let's say. Mm -hmm. So the economy is growing at a faster rate and therefore he can afford those higher interest rates. So I, I, I understand the supply demand, you know, if you've got a fixed amount of money and therefore if you had more supply of money, then likely interest rates would come down. But I, I think that what also impacts interest rates and maybe to a greater degree would be those inflation and growth expectations, which mm -hmm. involve other variables other than just the supply of money. Okay. So you, you're saying we, we're in a, the original situation where it's 100% reserve banking and we all have predictions. Then the banks announce, hey, we're actually going to have 80% reserves next week. We're just going to loan a bunch of money. And then 
that news not only changes net present value calculations, but also changes the general forecast of economic growth going forward. And so you're saying, uh, yeah, I, I don't even know yeah. that it would come from money supply. I think if let's just imagine that the money supply was five dollars again, mm-hmm. and then um, let's say that you have a, a, a large population that's coming into the United States, and uh, they're bringing in, uh, you know, more productivity, more efficient ways of producing stuff, mm-hmm. and the economy, uh, the future expectations of the economy are are growing. Uh, then I think that interest rates are going to be higher uh, because of the uh, basically opportunity costs uh, that banks have of lending money at this rate when you've got demand for an even higher rate because you see that economic growth. And therefore, if banks are creating uh, new currency units through fractional reserve lending, I don't know that that's going to actually bring down rates when uh, growth and inflation expectations are, uh, let's say, increasing. Okay, yeah. So strictly, I, I was probably uh, sloppy. Strictly speaking, it's lowering rates relative to what they otherwise would be. So yes, if there's a bunch of other forces at play that if we stuck to 100% reserve banking would actually make the equilibrium interest rate gently rise over time to ration the available credit you know, to the most important borrowers and da-da-da because in the economy's boot, you know, uh, rates of return that you could get in stocks and whatever are going up because everything's getting more productive and profitable. So likewise, just to you know, borrow safe money also on the margin has to go up too. And then in that environment, so if, if under 100% reserve banking, interest rates are, quote, supposed to go from 3% this year to 4% next year. And then because the banks expand credit, they only go from 3% to 3.5. Right. Right. In the Misesian story, that would still be a 0.5% cut below what it should have been. And so it's still giving the wrong information. Yeah. Yeah. I I think for me, the way I look at it is the exact same way that I look at the Mm -hmm. definition of inflation. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's that, is it, I I get it in 95% of the time. I think it's, it's spot on, Mm -hmm. but I could go through a thought experiment where 5% of the time, uh, interest rates might even be higher as a result of, uh, an expansion of the money supply. And uh, not not lower, you know. I, I mean, I guess that's a, a good question for you, Bob. Is that how how do we reconcile that? Because if an increase in the money supply leads to inflation, and interest rates are a result of inflation and growth expectations, then how does an increase in the money supply lead to uh, interest rates going down? Okay, right. So um, there's a distinction that. Mises and the Austrians in that tradition make between the critical thing is that when new money comes in through the banking system, the first prices that get distorted are interest rates. Okay. So in general, like let's, let's say we're on a gold, uh, not even gold standards, literally people use gold coins, let's say. Yeah. But then the banks also issue notes that say that, you know, the bearer of this note can get one gold coin at any of our branches, you know, so that's how this economy works. And then, you know, some miners, nearby in uh you know in the mountain they discover a ton of gold and they mine it and then everybody just overnight they just go around and you know santa claus just doubles everyone's quantity of gold coins yeah that's yeah. going to cause other things equal prices to rise quoted yeah. in gold ounces but it wouldn't cause the austrian boom bust cycle but what would happen is if um if the banking system then just doubles the quantity of gold holdings in people's possession because they print up a bunch of notes that say the bearer of the, like if their reserves went from hundred percent down to 50%, 
if you know originally everybody let's say had their gold coins in the vault at the bank and they had notes you know and it was backed up one to one and the people just in day-to-day commerce traded the notes but they were as good as gold and then the the banking system decided instead of having 100 reserves so they doubled the quantity of notes um and then that flooded the idea is the, the it where the new money enters the system matters because it kind of goes from you know sector to sector and so if it's coming in through the banks and as opposed to just santa claus giving it to everybody at once then you know the idea is it's called cantillon effects i'm you know i know you yeah, yeah. that phrase so yep. that's that's part of the idea that it, it matters if it's coming in via the banking system because the first prices that get distorted again how do the banks from the eve of when everything was 100 reserved now they want to double the quantity of notes how do they get that out into circulation, they're just going to hand them out to people. They're going to loan them out. But before the system has adjusted to the, their decision in order to induce them to take more notes, it's interest rates have to drop at least relative to what they otherwise would have been. That that's the idea. Yeah. Uh, but in general, you're right. I don't want to be mis- misunderstood. Yes. In general, if monetary policy has been very loose, you would see high nominal interest rates because of the cons- price inflation expectations. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So in like, in you know Weimar Germany, uh, or Weimar, uh, it was you know there was periods where interest rates were very high, and the Keynesians were saying, well, monetary policy isn't what's causing this hyperinflation because look, interest rates are high. <laughs> and guys like Mises, you know, did explain that no, that's crazy. Interest rates are actually really low right now relative to how fast the mark is depreciating. That even though you know I'm making this number, but if, if interest rates are eighty percent, but prices are doubling every week. Well, then the 80% actually is a very low number, right? It should be a lot higher just to maintain your purchasing power. So, so when we say lower high interest rate, yes, again, it means technically relative to, you know, what the counterfactual is. And yeah, in a period of very inflationary monetary policy, you would tend after a while to see high interest rates. So it's, it's not that low interest rates means easy, but again, in the, given whatever the situation is, if the Fed, for example, goes to more easy policy, I would say you'd see a drop in rates um, in, in that sort of like one-off experiment, even though over time, if they kept flooding it with money, rates would go up just because, you know, price inflation expectations would get built into that. Yeah, I I, I totally get the, the thought experiment and the differentiation between the two. For me, where I land is, again, similar to where I land on the uh, – definition of inflation being an expansion of the money supply and that it, it, it is, but it, it might not be, and it could be the complete opposite. And, and therefore I want to make sure that people know that it, it doesn't happen 100% of the time. And I think where I would land on this discussion is, is pretty much the same, same place mm-hmm. that it, an expansion of the money supply could lead to interest rates being lower even if we compartmentalize the two forms of an increase of money supply. But I also think that there's ways that it could lead to interest rates being higher, even if it's coming from the banking system initially. And therefore, we've got to be very, very careful about making that a quote-unquote rule of economics. Uh, you know, we've got to understand that there's some wiggle room there. And uh, yeah. and I think that's what's very, very important because so many people draw conclusions based on these things being steadfast rules, like a rule of physics or something like that, or a law of physics. Yes, I agree with everything you just said. And again, with the that's why, like I say, for me in practice, what I do is I say monetary inflation versus price inflation, just to give them different 
terms because they are different things. And yeah, there's no hard and fast rule that one always leads to the other. And even like in the standard monetarist, again, with this stuff, it's, you know, Mises, I think, you know, is actually would agree with a lot of what you're saying that he used to criticize uh, the the standard, uh, like the, it's called the equation of exchange MV equals PQ. And he didn't like that because he thought that led people to believe that, oh, if you double the quantity of money, then that means prices just double. And he said, no, it's, you don't know that. Like, yeah, other things equal increasing the money stock will tend to increase prices, but it's not necessarily a proportional relationship. You know, velocity could change if, you know, in terms of that equation, real output could change. So there's all sorts of ways to make the equation always be right. And it's not just that a 10% increase in money means a 10% increase in prices. So he was very adamant about that. Like, don't think about this too simplistically. The, the economy is really complex. Yeah, but but just to make sure viewers understand my my um, my position mm-hmm. is I, I, I'm not saying that I think there's sometimes that prices don't rise. I'm saying that there's sometimes that prices would actually be lower, right? Uh, with the expansion of the money supply, so it, it, it's not that uh, I don't understand the Austrian argument that prices are just higher than they otherwise would be or otherwise would have been uh, because I think that's what Austrians get really frustrated with mm-hmm. is when uh, people just sit there and say, Oh, well you think that if the money supply goes up, that we just have higher prices, a more of a, maybe a monetarist view. And they say, no, 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 no. We don't believe that because we understand that if the money supply increases, you can't have prices going down in Austrian. You know, I think that's a point of frustration for them. Mm-hmm. And I get that. Uh, but I just want to make sure that all the Austrians listening understand that that I'm coming from a position of understanding your definition of uh, it, or the reason you have that definition is not necessarily because prices always go up, but because they're higher than they otherwise would have been. I just want to make sure we're crystal clear on that. Y- yes. Right. So what I just said about Mises clarification, you're right. That's not the same point you've been making. You're You're taking it further. Yeah, sure. Yeah, at the very yeah, least. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. Okay, cool. Now, how, how much time do you have, Bob? I, I, we got like five things here. I didn't, just, I knew this was going to happen. I knew we'd get to like yeah. two of the talking I got, points. I got plenty of time. I don't, there's nothing I got going on. <laughs> I just checked my camera. No one scheduled a last minute business meeting. So yeah, I'm fine. Okay, cool. I don't want to take you too long, but I, I, what's cool is we did discuss this next topic, which is kind of, Uh, the Austrian view of interest rates versus growth and inflation and all that stuff. Hey guys, I want to remind you to check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. This is the incredible online investment forum that I have with investment experts, Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Serezna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options. Jason Hartman, real estate. And Brent Johnson with Macro Economics. If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out of control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow rebel capitalists that are taking their investing to the next level. So the next thing I'd like to pull up, and and I have been wrestling with this for 
so long. And, and it, it's, I, I think this is actually a point of frustration for me because it, it, it's almost like ignorance is bliss. If I never would have discovered this, mm. Bob, my life would be a lot easier. <laughs> <laughs> but unfortunately, I, I, I looked at this and now I can't, I couldn't reconcile. Is it the Ten Commandments? And like, oh, gee. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I saw this and I couldn't recon- reconcile my current worldview. Mm-hmm. So I had to really, you know, try to poke holes in it. And, and it was very, very difficult in all honesty, because you got a little bit of ego involved there, but it, it led me to the conclusion that a lot of what I had thought before was completely inaccurate. Uh, because when I first started this channel, Mm -hmm. you know, I was under the view that the fed was really the center of the monetary solar system Mm -hmm. and that everything that they did, you know, that impacted the bank's, uh, balance sheet capacity and all these things. And, uh, the, the more I dive into this, the more, I, I think it's the complete opposite. And what the epiphany moment, if you will, was just looking at the Fed's balance sheet between 1980 and 2007. Um, and, but I, I've, I've done it through uh, many, many decades, I want to be clear. And I, I see this you know, playing out over many, many decades. But I'd just like to focus on this period because it's, it's so dramatic. And so what I'd like to do here, if I can, just so people are are on the same page with us. I'd like to do a screen share. Let's see if I can do that. Uh, okay, cool. And then let's just go over. So this is what I'm referring to specifically. Mm-hmm. And um, for, for those of you who might be watching this on your phone or whatever, you can't really see the chart. Uh, what I'm getting at is this is a chart or right from Fred of the actual reserves on the Fed's balance sheet. So the reserves of the banking system. Uh, These are the bank reserves that you always hear about with quantitative easing, quantitative tightening. A a lot of people loosely refer to it as liquidity. That's another thing that drives me crazy. But um, what I stumbled across here is that if you look at 1980, we see that the reserves in the system, and and Bob confirmed earlier that this included vault cash, by the way, uh, was right around, let's say, 40 billion. And then if we fast forward to just before QE, uh, even 2008 here, it was basically the exact same. And I've read a lot of the kind of Fed summaries, the annual summaries that they would give on what they had to do that year as far as open market operations. Mm -hmm. And you see uh, that the, the, the Fed would never, ever create reserves wanting the banks to lend more. It was the opposite that the bank, they would sit there and try to predict how much the banks would lend in the next quarter based on what they had done the previous quarter. And then they would try, then they'd say, okay, we need to create X amount of reserves to make sure that we're facilitating uh, enough bank or that we're giving the banks what they need to create those loans. And it goes back to a podcast. I think we talked about this last time too, or it might've been the research that you were doing in writing your paper. Uh, the, the, the monetary, um, what was it, Bob, that you the title of your paper for the Mises Institute, understanding money mechanics. That yes. One? Yes. Thank yeah. you. And, and I think you told that story of when you interviewed some uh, high level bank executive mm-hmm. and you asked him about bank reserves. And he said that literally in my 40 years of banking, that has never come up <laughs> as far as, uh, you know, can we issue this mortgage? I don't know, Bill, do we have enough bank reserves? He said that, that that's 
we don't discuss that. Like, like that's not an issue at all. And that fits right into what we're seeing here, or what I think we're seeing, is that if M2 money supply goes from 1.5 trillion, which it was in 1980, to 7.5 trillion, which it was in 2007, additionally, the Fed funds rate <laughs> goes from 15% to 5% because you would, the way the if you read the textbooks, what they tell you is prior to quantitative easing, the way they got those interest rates down is by doing open market operations or buying or selling you know, treasuries, creating more or fewer uh, bank reserves. So if you've got an environment where interest rates are going from 15 down to five, plus you've got M2 going from 1.5 to 7.5, how on earth can bank reserves stay the same if banks actually used bank reserves? That, that's really what I wrestle with. Okay, let me, I, I don't know that I'm going to answer, specifically answer your last uh, question there, but let me just, I'll say some stuff and then, you know, you can take it however you want. Um, so, right, to, to, the, the book is Understanding Money Mechanics and I go through it and I have a specific chapter in there saying, you know, do the economics textbooks get uh, monetary expansion backwards? Because you're right, George, this is something that's come up a lot where there's, a growing chorus of people both outside of economics and also in, inside saying, Hey, the standard model that we used to teach about loanable funds. And if the fed wants to expand, it buys assets that gives more reserves then the banks can multiply on top of that. Yeah. That, that's that's not what happens in reality. Um, and also sit. And then during what, 2020, the, the fed totally got rid of reserve requirements anyway. So a lot of people are saying, you know, whether or not that story was true before, clearly it's not now because there is no necessary re, uh, reserve requirement. Um, so, and I talked to this guy and he was well-versed in Austrian theory, this guy who was a, had been a banker. And yeah, as you say, he said, we are, we're talking about someone's a mortgage application. It's just a matter of, is it a good loan? Does it make sense? Right. Is the collateral good? Blah, blah, blah. And what would happen though, because at the time, you know, there were reserve requirements. So clearly what must've been happening is if they did advance and then it turned out that their reserves were lower than the, you know, the, the necessary amount, they would just go out and get some because that's what the federal funds market is. The banks can borrow reserves from each other. And that's what the federal funds rate signifies is what's the, the annualized, you know, rate. But if they're using uh, reserves in aggregate total, the reserves would still have to go up, even if they're able to borrow those reserves. Well, well, that's where, yeah, that's where I'm going with this. So okay. from the individual bank's point of view, yeah, they might not think reserves are a binding constraint because, oh, we just go borrow it. But the idea is that, yeah, if economic activity is picking up, if the, if the prosperity seems on the horizon, and so banks are more optimistic, they're willing to grant more credit. And But if there is a reserve requirement in place, like a 10% or whatever, then, yeah, any one bank can go on the market and borrow more. But in the aggregate, they can't all be borrowing. So so banks, commercial banks, can, they cannot create reserves. They can't create base money, and they can't create deposits with the Fed. They can just transfer them among each other. So if they're all trying to collectively get more reserves to make more loans that would push up the federal funds rate. And so the, the idea is yeah, if the fed um, just has a, a given target for what the federal funds rate should be, they would see it start going up. And then if they said, "Uh Oh, we want the target to be 3%. And now it's getting up to 3.4, 3.5. Then what would they do? They would buy more assets, pump more reserves into the system. And that would push the, it back down to their target. Right. So it's true that, there you could say, oh, the Fed is passively responding to the demand for credit and it's it's real activity that's endogenously determining the money stock. 
but strictly speaking, the Fed is still in control of that and that kind of system. It's just if they chose their variable, their you know the the lever they're going to use their target as the federal funds rate, then that's what it would be. And then of course, if economic activity starts going because they expanded the reserves, if you know standard price inflationary pressures start building, then the Fed might say, "Uh oh, let's raise the federal funds rate." Okay, so I, I get that there's nuances and maybe the actual way each person in the system's thinking it through doesn't line up with what a textbook from 1960 would have said, but there's still, you know, that, that mechanism in place is kind of a different way of, of, of looking at it. That it's still the case that in the story I just told, if that's what's going on, that federal reserve officials are ultimately controlling the quantity of reserves and they do have an impact on price inflation. It's, but, but yes, they might not be thinking day to day. Oh, well, let's, Let's, uh, you know, oh, we want banks to lend or borrow less. It's more we're looking at the federal funds rate because that's what our target. We're looking at measures of core inflation and blah, blah, blah. Right. But let's 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 go through that because you're talking about them kind of manipulating the overnight rate to wherever they want it to be by adding or subtracting reserves from the system. Mm -hmm. And this is the idea that that banks actually use these reserves. And therefore, if, uh, you know, since banks use these reserves, well, then there's going to be, let's say, X demand for those reserves. So if we extract reserves, then interest rates are going to go up. If we add reserves, then interest rates, the Fed funds rate is going to go down. That's kind of the idea. Uh, but, But my point there, and that's why I highlighted interest rates going from 15% down to five. Mm hmm. That would have required a lot <laughs> of open market operations. That would have required a lot more bank reserves, even if M2 was the same. Even if M2 would not have gone up, you know, just to get the interest rates down that low from 15 to 5. But when you combine that with the M2 going up by $6 trillion, I, I don't see how it, it's possible that banks were actually using these reserves. And, and and I would, I would take slight issue with just some of the terminology uh, that you're using. Is that the banks can't create reserves? Now I, I agree that they can't, you know, create anything on the Fed's balance sheet, but they can create cash. And I think that that that's really what's going on here. Is is the banks create their own liquidity? So as an example, if I'm Wells Fargo and you're B of A and I need to send you a thousand dollar deposit liability for, you know, because I've got one customer transferring money Mm -hmm. uh, to another, uh, a customer at the other bank or whatever, um, you know, we can settle that several ways. And it is true that if we wanted to, we could settle that on the Fed's balance sheet because I've got to somehow give you uh, an asset to offset that liability I gave you. But another thing that we could do is you just extend credit. So that bank just extends me credit. I give them liability or maybe I have money, uh, credit that was already issued at that other bank. And therefore, when I send them that deposit liability, they just reduce my account by whatever it is that I send them, that $1,000. And on their balance sheet, it's a wash. And you just have the banks going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And the only way that these things are settled is just simply on their balance sheet uh, without the Fed and just extending credit back and forth with IOUs And if the banks create dollars, I think they create their own liquidity. And that would explain why they, to me, had absolutely no use for bank reserves whatsoever. Uh, And I don't, and then I, the the next step for me logically is, well, if they didn't need bank reserves prior to QE, why on earth do they need them after QE? Now, I totally get it. Uh, If we want to talk about the BTFP, yeah, they need bank reserves. 
right? They, if, if they need a bailout, then I, mm-hmm. I get it. Yeah, they, they need those reserves. But in normal times uh, where risk is just quote unquote normal, uh, if they weren't using them in 1990, I don't know why on earth they'd be using them in 2015 as an example. Okay, a couple things. So I'll I'll keep my responses quick because I I want you to you know push back. So yes, what if in the like late 1970s interest rates were really high and then they came down quickly, you know by the mid 1980s and that wasn't that wasn't corresponding to uh, massive expansion of of Fed activity. In fact, it was the other way around, right? So this kind of goes back to what we said, whatever, 15 minutes ago that, yeah, this, it gets complicated and it's just, you know, I don't, maybe, I don't know if it's because the framework's not great or just this, you got to keep all these things in mind. There's lots of balls in the air, but price inflation expectations do matter when people are negotiating interest rates. And so, yes, in the late seventies, when price inflation was really high, nominal interest rates had to be high also, just so you'd get your purchasing power back. Right. And then when the Fed broke the back of inflation, Volcker coming in and tightening, then once we got out of that, you know, doom loop, people interest rates could be lower simply because people knew, oh, yeah, the dollar I'm going to get paid back in five years is going to be a lot stronger than I would have thought, you know, in 1979 if I was making a five year loan. And so that's why interest nominal interest rates could be a lot, a lot lower, having nothing to do with, you know, the Fed actually the other way around that because the Fed tightened. That's the sense in which, you know, nominal rates could be lower. So so that's, you know, that but element. Those, but to bring mm-hmm. the Fed funds rate down, the overnight rate, assuming demand was the same, you would have had to add more bank reserves. Because uh, uh, let's say let's say these banks actually are using these reserves. Like, let's go back to that example of, of me being a bank, you being a bank, and I'm transferring you a deposit liability. If the only way that I'm settling that is on the Fed's balance sheet by also uh, giving you a bank reserve, uh, an offsetting asset for that liability that I just uh, sent you. If that's actually what's happening, and therefore there is demand for all of these bank reserves for bank interbank settlement, is what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Then, in order to bring the overnight rate uh, from 15% down to five, you would have to have more reserves in the system, assuming that the demand for those reserves stayed constant. And I argue that the demand for those would have to actually go up because of M2 money supply increasing at the exact same time. Well, I would just make the modest point, though, that if in general, if you get how, if everyone went from thinking, oh, regular consumer prices are going to rise 30% year after year, as far as the eye can see, if you went from that world to one where you're thinking, oh, consumer prices are only going to rise 1% year every year, that interest rates, nominal interest rates in general would be lower, like T-bills and and 10-year treasuries and what. And so then oh, I totally agree with that. So, the, I totally so then agree with that. the federal funds rate also would te- like, why would the bank lend their overnight reserves to somebody at an annualized rate of 1% if on anything else they could get even really safe, you know, commercial paper, they could earn 10%, right? So I'm just saying that other interest rates do affect what the federal funds rate would be besides merely what's the quantity of, of reserves. Yeah, I totally, okay, I totally so agree with that. Okay. Um, and then, oh, you had made... I just, I just think that for that interbank settlement that mm-hmm. most people think bank reserves are a requirement, uh, in that environment, you would have had to have had a lot more reserves than, uh, than $40 billion. And there's no way that reserves could have stayed the same from 1980 to 2007 
if the banks were actually using them for settlement. Okay. Well, that, that's let me, probably the simplest way I can say. Okay. It. Let me come in it this way. So you said something before that I, I do think we have a genuine disagreement about. You said banks can create cash. I guess it depends. What do we mean by the word cash? So if, if we're talking about actual currency, like, no, that would be counterfeit. The banks can't literally create $100 bills. Yeah, that's, yeah I, I should have been yeah. more specific. Yeah, is it, it, banks can create dollars in the form of bank credit. They can create more assets and liabilities denominated in dollars. Great. Yes. And so, and that, that measure that is included like an M1 and M2, you know, those, those, so broader measure, but reserve, but it's not reserves. So reserves are green pieces of paper or deposits with the fed. Yeah. Yeah. So banks can't do that. And that's why like bank runs happen, right? If, if, in other words, the kind of credit a bank can create is different from the kind of credit the fed can create legally. That's why, you know, the Fed is able to bail out a commercial bank. You know, why, why would a commercial bank ever be in trouble if you could just create money? It's because actually, well, no, depending because on public it, sentiment, you know, Bank of America's IOU all of a sudden isn't as good as a $100 bill, whereas in normal times it is. They're interchangeable. Yeah, but, but I like to point out that let's just go back to the BTFP. Mm -hmm. uh, the, they, the Silicon Valley Bank, as an example, they mm -hmm. didn't necessarily need bank reserves. The, all they needed were dollars. Right. So as an example, J.P. Morgan uh, could have come in and extended them credit. And that would have had nothing to do with the Fed's balance sheet. But yet that would have bailed them out. So that that's an example of the banking system not needing the Fed's balance sheet to provide liquidity. OK. I mean, yeah, that, that's true. I guess I'm saying, though, that the system as a whole. Uh, well, I, again, I don't disagree with, with the sentence you just said, but I don't see how that contradicts. Back when reserve, you know, there were reserve requirements and banks can't create reserves. So I, I get you might, if you're saying maybe reserves aren't a big deal, you know, that that's, you might. No, right. yeah, I, I totally agree that, mm -hmm. that as far as if we're getting technical here on definitions, bank reserves, banks cannot create those. Right. Uh, that, that is just the Fed. That is absolutely. And, and they cannot create green pieces of paper. Uh, mm -hmm. They can't create base money, if you will. Right. Yeah. Um, that's the way of saying it. Yeah, but I, I don't know that they need base money. And if if you look at this chart, I don't know how you could argue uh, that they do need base money or that they even use base money. They definitely don't need it to settle. Uh, I mean, I again, it depends. They they could insist on it. Like if if one bank owes another hundred thousand dollars, yeah, and the one bank just says, "Oh, we're good for it," the first bank could say, "No, no we we'd like you to actually settle up in terms of you know wire us funds." And, you know, what would that mean? It's not just a, you know, so th there is that that sense in which um, I think ultimately if they do settle, it might have to involve transfers of, of reserves. But you're right. They they could have facilities. Yeah. Another example that I give you, uh, Bob, is is we've just talked about the amount of dollars within the United States. I mean, for mm -hmm. heaven's sakes, let's think about the amount the amount of dollars that were created outside of the United States from 1980 to 2007. <laughs> Think about that one if you want your head to explode. Uh, we probably had global M2 denominated in dollars. I'm talking about dollars now. Mm -hmm. uh, my goodness gracious. Uh, it probably, I don't have the statistics right off the top of my head, but uh, I think it's very realistic that global M2, if you just look at the amount of dollars, uh, would have gone from, let's just say, 10 trillion to what, 30, 40 trillion, uh, maybe even more. In 2007, so think about that. If if all these banks need bank reserves to settle dollar transactions, how can 40 
billion facilitates 40 trillion. There, there's just, it's impossible just mathematically. Yeah. Uh, I understand what you're saying here. Let me, let me say one thing that, you know, it, it partly explains the the pattern, but yeah, I, I do get what you're, what you're getting at. Um, and I, so some of that could, could possibly be, again, I'd have to look at the specifics as to what we're, but yeah, if some foreign institution has dollar denominated assets that doesn't fall under the jurisdiction of, you know, U S regulation, you know what I mean? So technically yeah. they, they could be getting away with saying, Oh yeah, we owe you, well, you know, our customers, we owe them $10 billion in, in U S dollars. And it's not that the fed would be able to say to them, well, show us that you've got $1 billion in reserve somewhere else. You're in violation of our regulations. Are we talking about, you know, we're a Swiss bank would, you know, so, so that's, that's one thing, but yeah, in general, I think what happened and partly that what led to the downfall of, of old school monetarism, like, you know, Milton Friedman's deal that, Oh, let's just let M2 grow at 5% every year. And then everything is going to be great. Yeah. That broke down in the eighties. And I would argue ironically because of the success of Reaganomics. So, you know, Reagan comes in, they have, uh, 25% across the board cuts in income tax rates, you know, early on the Kemp Roth tax cuts. So I, th- and in conjunction with Volcker tightening at the fed and getting price inflation under control. So I think those two things put together meant global demand for dollar denominated assets went way up because now, Oh, the dollar is much more stable in terms of its purchasing power. So other things equal. Yeah. I'd want to hold treasuries as opposed to, you know, some other German bonds or something. And, um, the, the lower taxes, right? That that increased the demand for U.S. assets. And so ironically, uh, the demand to hold dollars went way up and hence they could get away with expanding the quantity of dollars without, you know, seeing movements in the relative price of it the way that, you know, would have happened earlier. So or, I- or, 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 or said another way, those banks outside of the United States settling without any reserves or any currency. Uh, that's, that's kind of another epiphany that I had, Mm -hmm. Bob is when I was looking through this, I thought to myself, okay, if if, let's just assume for a moment that banks are not settling on the fed's balance sheet, how do they do that? Like, like how, how, how is that happening? Right. Let's say in or outside of the United States, if the, if it's a reserveless system, if it's, if it's a, a, a currency and reserveless system, how are they doing that? If we have trillions of dollars or billions of dollars going back and forth as far as dollar liabilities, mm-hmm. you know, going back and forth from this commercial bank to that commercial bank. And I get you can net settle at the end of the night, but still we're talking about a $110 trillion economy here, you know, global economy. And so I, I just did those little simple T balance sheets, right, for different banks. And I'm like, okay, this is how you would settle. And so what you, the conclusion that you come to is it's just, we're both banks. You have an account with me. I have an account with you. And if I send you a liability, then uh, that offsetting asset is just going to be a loan from you to me. That's the offsetting mm-hmm. asset. And, or if uh, you've already lent me money and I have uh, uh, dollars, let's say, in an account with you that's a liability, then we can just decrease my account by the amount that I'm sending you and therefore the liability side of your balance sheet doesn't change at all. It's just you decrease one account, you increase the other. And so it, it, once you start going through that, you're like, oh yeah, this it actually is very easy for these banks to settle without bank reserves. And then that just goes back to, and the, the main thing I'm getting at here is now, and nowadays, you know, we 
in the mainstream media, they get just so fixated on QE, QT, QE, and you know the Fed's balance sheet and all these things. And my point is, outside of times of crisis, uh, it doesn't. I don't think it matters. I just don't think it matters. And I think this again leads people to uh, some conclusions that are completely inaccurate, uh, especially when they're trying to figure out, you know, what's going to happen to liquidity, let's say, in 2024, and how is that going to impact the stock market? Okay, great. So let me. I think I agree with you, but but. Uh... It seems like we're we're drawing different conclusions from the observation or, f- or from that statement. So you're right because what I was just thinking of when you were explaining where you were coming from is that yes, especially banks around the world, you know, outside of U.S. jurisdiction, they can certainly get levered up and be you know, having all these offsetting claims, huge dollar liabilities owed to others. But oh hey, this other bank, you know, has I have dollar uh, assets. You know, the, this other bank owes me, and so blah blah blah, and it's just the net's not big. But the more that pyramids on top of a very small amount of actual, you know, treasuries or like literal uh, accounts with the Fed or, you know, with with a U.S. bank that has reserves or whatever, it it becomes very fragile. Oh, I agree. And so we're kind of agreeing that you're saying the only time it matters is in a crisis. And and right, that in general to say, oh, Wells or Deutsche Bank owes me a million dollars in U.S. dollars, and they say, well, do they have it? And they say, no, but they're good for it. It's Deutsche Bank. But when would it matter is, no, there's a crisis, and I really need my money, and then their creditors are, you know, and then the stuff that they thought they had, that all dries up, and then they actually can't give me $1,000. They can just say, you know, oh, I have this IOU from Deutsche Bank. I don't actually have a 1000 or a million, whatever number I said, dollars. Then it would matter. You know, in a crisis, there is a rush to liquidity, and then people actually do care about you know the difference between a hundred dollar bill and a bank right. saying we owe you a hundred dollars. Yep. And so I, I, agree, I agree that that's and I guess that kind of dovetails again with so why are, are you Austrians such sticklers for these definitions? And our point is because those crises don't just come from Mars or an act of God. It's this fragile system that pyramids with a you know a shaky foundation that causes these boom bust cycles. So that's why these crises occur. Is because we allowed the system to mushroom, where you know there was nothing really backing up a lot of this credit. Yes, yes. So I, I would I would look at it from a slightly different view as far as what creates that 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 boom bust cycle. But I also want to just make one real quick point here is is you talked about U.S. Treasuries, mm-hmm. and ironically, I think this is why there's probably it, it's it's not that interest rates can't go up at the long end, but I think interest rates. Well, a lot harder time going up, even with this argument about the the debt doom loop, right? Mm-hmm. That interest rates go up, the government can't afford it. They run these huge deficits. Therefore, the debt goes up. Therefore, interest rates go even higher. Therefore, the the burden of those interest payments become even greater, requiring more debt. Interest rates go up. You know this this, this doom loop argument. And I say, you know, I can see how that could happen, but be very very careful with that. Because once you understand the global monetary system, the way we just uh, the way we just outlined it, you realize how important. If you believe that the global economy is going to slow down, you start to realize how important U.S. Treasuries are, because that's a way that you can actually settle. To your point, you know, how does this bank, how Deutsche Bank, you know, they owe me a million dollars or whatever, and let's say that counterparty risk goes through the roof because of this boom bust cycle. 
well, I need those green pieces of paper or, or I need U.S. Treasuries. I need a cash equivalent, you know, something like that. And, 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 and that's what I think a lot of the people miss that argue for uh, the 10-year Treasury yield just going uh, straight to, you know, 15, 20% because of this debt doom loop. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're right. And I think that's actually why guys like Peter Schiff, even though they predicted, you know, they, they were spot on with the housing bubble stuff. You know, if you look at interviews with Schiff, like in 2006, 2007, yeah. he seems like a prophet. And yet, anecdotally, I just, I know that like his own, you know, fund or whatever, like didn't do great in 2008 because he was betting against the dollar and the dollar strength. And so I think that's partly what happened is he was right that a crisis was coming, but in his mind, and everyone knows the dollar is not backed up by anything. Why would you go to that? But yet investors around the world went to the dollar is the safest, you know, treasuries is the safe asset par excellence in that crisis. And so that may happen again, going forward, you know, let's say I'm right. And there is a hard landing in 2024, right. You will probably see, uh, the U.S. dollar strength and relative to other currencies, um, I, but I do think, and that's why you see that inversion of the curve because people are betting. The insiders, in my opinion, mm-hmm. are betting that you're going to have that flight to safety, and right. in 2024, whether we like it or not, uh, that safety, quote unquote, is still going to be U.S. Treasuries. Yeah. So all I would say as a postscript on that, though, is I don't think there's an infinite amount of trust in the U S treasury that I think at some point, if they keep doing this at some point, uh, investors around the world are going to say, you know, we got to let's start loading up on something else. And maybe, you know, and there's still like, look at the BRICS countries. They're, they're really stockpiling gold, particularly China. And so, but, but that's only mm-hmm. my view on that is mm-hmm. that's only going to that very well could, but it's only going to happen if the dollar goes down in value against other currencies. If the dollar is going down against goods and services in the United States, I think that's a nothing burger. Uh, because especially the more time I spend outside the United States, because like as an example, people here in Colombia, mm-hmm. they save in dollars, just like Argentina or Turkey or something like that, because they're so used to their currency inflating. I can promise you that the local Colombian does not care at all about what's happening to the inflation rate or the CPI in the United States. <laughs> they, they could oh, care right, less. Yeah. Right, All right. they care about is what the dollar is doing relative to their own goods and services. And if the dollar, even though it's going down in value in the States, is going up against goods and services here, uh, which it has been in the past, uh, that's all they care about. That's all they care about. So if you're one of those international banks uh, and Deutsche Bank owes you a million dollars, and let's just say that your expenses are denominated in... Um, uh, you know, whatever euros or something like that. Uh, the only thing you care about is whether or not the dollar is going down against the euro. Uh, you could care less if inflation in the United States is 20%. I agree with everything you just said, but I, again, I still think in the kind of scenario I outlined, what you're saying would be the triggers would come true. So if there is a doom loop and, uh, you know, they, because the tre- they, they get there behind the curve and, oh my gosh, now in, uh, our interest payments are $2 trillion dollars. We can't tax that much. Let's just print more money. And they, they get in that cycle where they're just printing to pay the interest from, you know, that's coming due. And yep, CPI in the U.S. is through the roof. But also because now they're printing like crazy, you, I think you would see the dollar falling against the euro and the yen. But how does that money, this is a great topic too, Bob, mm-hmm. by the way. Uh, how does that money, those dollars uh, that are quote unquote printed, let's just say M2 goes up in the United States like it did in 2020 by 25%. Mm-hmm. How, does, how do those currency units get outside the United States? 
other than through a trade deficit. I, I mean, that that's one way they could do it. Right. But if it's just a trade deficit, then you're limited to the amount of currency units that can get out. So let's just say that we're running a trade deficit of a trillion a year, mm-hmm. which is it's obviously huge, you know, massive. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, we're, we're in a global economy. It's 110 trillion plus. And let's just think, you know, 60, 70 percent of the transactions are settled in dollars. So you got to figure there's 60, 70, 80 trillion dollars on balance sheets, the aggregate balance sheet outside of the United States. And in a world where we have, uh, let's say, a global recession, there's going to be fewer currency units that are created by that system outside the United States. And therefore, uh, you know, you might have an equal amount of demand. Banks are tightening their lending standards, et cetera. And therefore, that trillion dollars, although it increases uh, the supply of dollars coming out of the United States on net balance, the amount of dollars globally might actually be decreasing because of the lack of bank activity and the slowing of velocity due to the global recession. Actually, sorry, I misspoke a minute ago that that it wouldn't be the trade deficit in the scenario. What would happen is investors would want to get out of U.S. dollar-denominated assets and they might try to go buy like Japanese bonds or something. And so then- But why would would they want to get out of dollar assets if the dollar was not depreciating against their local currency? No, no, I'm talking about people in the U.S., Oh, okay. Right. Okay. I mean, you're saying okay. how would the the feds, you know, cranking up their, they're increasing the quantity of money 30% a year. Oh, so I see. Okay. Year, so so dollar, dollars get out of the U S into the hands of foreigners around the world. Got it. And one thing got is it. So Paul, Paul Tudor Jones manages $50 billion, right. let's say. Right. And he's like, you know, I'm done with these U S treasuries. I'm going to buy uh, Japanese debt or something like that. Right. And so then that's why in the Forex market. So now there's more dollars being offered for yen. Okay, got and it. So that's what would make the exchange rate move. Got it. But I'd still have the same argument that that's like, you know, if you're if you're taking a leak in the ocean, you're definitely adding to the supply of water. <laughs> but it's it's not going to move the needle too much at, at, when you look at the the grand scale of things. And uh, you know what's interesting about the the dollars outside the United States, Bob, is I've also come up with this theory. That that demand outside of the United States, demand for dollars actually uh, manages supply. So let's just say that we had the petrodollar. That uh, tomorrow it doesn't exist anymore. Uh, the the Saudis say, "Oh, we don't want these dollars. We want the gold, or we want the the BRICS currency, or something like that." Because all of the dollars, or the vast majority of them, outside of the United States were were created through lending. They were lent into existence. If you have the demand for dollars outside the U.S. go down by, let's say, $10 trillion, what's likely going to happen is those dollars are going to circulate to a point where it gets to people that owe the $10 trillion that was uh, those loans, the $10 trillion of the dollar-denominated debt that was created when the dollars were created to begin with, and they're going to pay off that debt if they don't want those dollars. And therefore, if demand for dollars goes down, so does the supply. And and it's because, again, all those dollars are such a high percentage of them were lent into existence, where opposed to if they were just green pieces of paper and all of a sudden demand goes down by $10 trillion, then those $10 trillion don't go away. They're still there. And then you get the, the Weimar Germany pictures, you know, where people are like shoving, shoveling them into a wheelbarrow. Or mm-hmm. something like that. But because they were lent into existence, if demand goes down, I think supply would go down as well to where you would still have that equilibrium. 
And that's why I think it's it's so difficult for the dollar to, quote unquote, crash uh, against other currencies. And therefore, you know, it's going to, if that's the case, if that is true, then that's going to go right back to those treasuries being seen as, uh, let's just say, pristine collateral uh, for many, many years and possibly decades to come. Okay. So that's, that's interesting. I, I agree with you that, right, to the extent that when we you know, quote statistic about how many dollars are being held abroad, that um, if it if it's not a green piece of paper and it's not a, you know, a treasury or something like that, but it really is just, you know, the inner bank credits or whatever, then yes, when they created those, that didn't necessarily contribute to like the U S trade deficit or anything. So it's not that it's not that people in the United States benefited from that. It's just foreigners are quoting things to each other in dollars instead of their local currency. That doesn't directly affect Americans. It's just banks. It's just banks outside the United States creating dollar loans. Right. So then if that system unravel or unwinds that per se, yeah, wouldn't have any deleterious effect. I, I agree with you on that. I guess though, I would say that it's true, but still partly what fueled that process is that a lot of actual base money, you know, there are a lot of hundred dollar bills being held abroad that might serve as sort of like the anchor point to a lot of that transactions. Ultimately things do get settled. If they do get settled in reserves, just like, like why would some, some foreign bank have the credibility? Why would people accept its IOUs? It's because they do, if, if requested, they could give you actual dollars, right? It's just, they don't have to in practice because they're good. You know, people think they're good for it, but you know, that's how they get that credibility. And so you do see like once, you know, once Nixon left the gold standard, the U S trade deficit went way up. Right. And so I do think there was a sense in which loosely speaking or, or simplistically put it, Americans printed up dollars and sent them abroad and then foreigners sent them a bunch of goodies. And so if global demand for dollars crashes, I do think you are going to see chickens coming home to roost from that. But I agree with you. It's I not agree. Gonna be, that's it's not going to be one for one. No, I agree. But that's a different argument. Okay. And, and, and my base case, it may seem very counterintuitive, uh, but my base case is if demand for dollars does go down globally for whatever reason, BRICS mm-hmm. currency, gold, you know, Russia, China, that you, you would see dollars likely flood back into the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that would create consumer price inflation in the United States because you have more currency units chasing the same amount of goods and services. Mm-hmm. But ironically enough, I think that would make the dollar skyrocket relative to other currencies. Because let's just assume for a moment you've got seventy trillion dollars out there on the aggregate balance sheet outside the United States. Let's just assume also that a hundred percent of those were lent into existence. So you've got seventy trillion dollars on the asset side of the, of the balance sheet, but you've got seventy trillion dollars on the liability side as well, in that dollar-denominated debt. So that dollar-denominated debt represents demand for dollars, right? So if you have ten trillion of those dollars flood right back into the United States creating massive consumer price inflation. But now all of a sudden you've got $60 trillion on the asset side relative to that 70 trillion on the liability side. You got a huge mismatch and that makes the dollar skyrocket relative to other currencies because of that demand for dollars to pay back that dollar denominated debt that created the dollars to begin with. Okay, I confess I got a little bit lost in your train of thought. I guess I'm gonna make the simple observation. The only reason dollars would be flowing from abroad back into the United States is if foreigners didn't want them. Yeah, yeah. No, I, so I, I, no, I, I'm not seeing how that would make the dollar stronger on Forex markets if foreigners don't want it. 
let, let me, I'll just rewind a little bit mm-hmm. here. Um, and, and again, guys, I, I want to be very, very clear. I, I'm just springing this on, on Bob and, <laughs> and this is stuff that I think about a lot. So this, this is, uh, yeah, I probably should not have done this. I, I should have, with most of the things that we're talking about, I, I gave Bob kind of a, a warning here so he could prepare. And I've been in interviews where they do the exact same thing. You're kind of, you know, you haven't really just given it much thought. And um, so I want to be very sympathetic to that, Bob. And I, I, I appreciate you, uh, you know, just kind of going along with these thought experiments and uh, kind of humoring me on this. It, it really helps me crystallize my sure. thinking. Yeah. Um, so, but anyway, uh, if, if, if we've got $70 trillion, and when I say the aggregate balance sheet, I just mean if you took the, if there was just one balance sheet for all the entities outside the United States, Mm-hmm. You know, we just have assets on the left, liabilities on the right. And if, if we have $70 trillion out there, then that, those $70 trillion would be someone's asset. They, they absolutely would. Uh, but, there, in, but those $70 trillion were created by creating an offsetting liability mm-hmm. in the form of that loan that has to be paid back. Mm-hmm. Right. So when I say that there's 70 trillion on the asset side, I'm just talking about the actual dollars. Uh, but then on the liability side, I'm talking about the dollar loans that were created uh, to create the dollars to begin with because those dollars were lent into existence. Right. So mm-hmm. as an example, if you go to the bank and you have a $500,000 mortgage, now all of a sudden you have 500,000 more dollars, which are assets but you also have a $500,000 liability to that bank. Mm-hmm. And so let's just assume for a moment that you say, oh, no, I don't, I don't, dollars, no, you're crazy. No, I want to be paid in Bitcoin. Okay, well, that may be good if the price of Bitcoin is going up, but unfortunately you can't use those Bitcoin to pay back your loan because your loan is denominated in dollars. So even if you want to sell all your dollars, it doesn't mean you still don't have a dollar liability. And it's still, and it, and it means that you have to somehow come up with dollars <laughs> in the future to make those monthly payments, right? So that's what I'm talking about as far as that $500,000 loan on your balance sheet, that liability being future dollar demand. And so let's just assume that, you know, you've got that $500,000 um, liability and you have $500,000, but all of a sudden, if the amount of dollars that you have gets cut in half, and it's replaced by euros or whatever. Now you want to pay off that loan, or let's say the loan is due, like a balloon payment. Now all of a sudden you're two hundred fifty thousand dollars short. So you'd have to sell those euros to buy dollars to make that lump sum payment. In which case the demand for dollars would actually go up relative to the supply, and the value of the dollar relative to the euro would skyrocket. That that's hopefully hopefully I've I've made that point a little more clear. I guess I'm not seeing, so we're in original equilibrium and then foreigners in general want to reduce their demand for dollar denominated assets, right? Or, or just dollars point. and therefore those dollars come back to the United States. So now they're circulating in the United States and to your point, the only way they can get, or one of the only ways they can get out is by investors sending them back out or by the United States running a trade deficit. But but if we're talking about ten trillion, you know, now all of a sudden you've got a deficiency. That equilibrium is now off kilter. Okay, because okay. we had seventy trillion of assets and seventy trillion of liabilities, which represented, let's say, the dollar being at uh, let's just say at par with the euro. Just mm-hmm. to throw that out there, 
Um, but now all of a sudden, we only have $60 trillion to service that $70 trillion worth of dollar or worth of dollar debt, which represents demand. Mm-hmm. And if we now only have $60 trillion circulating outside the, outside the United States, therefore, the dollar would skyrocket relative to other currencies because entities that have that dollar-denominated debt would have to sell their local currency to get the dollars to make up with that gap of the $10 trillion that just came back into the United States that can no longer get out to service that debt that's outside the United States. Okay, I think I got you. All right, so from... I'm trying to do it. So from your, uh, should this, uh, this should be assets, right? <laughs> oh, shoot. are you again? drawing something? No, I'm just holding up my hands. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm sorry. I was on a, I was on a different page. Okay. Now okay. I'm looking at you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this should be assets from your point of view and this should be yes. liabilities. Okay. Yes. So yeah, you're saying originally globally, you know, it's, these two are at 70 trillion yep. and then in general, foreigners want to hold 10 trillion fewer dollars. And so the assets drop. Correct. And that, Right there, that tends to weaken the dollar against other currencies. But, oh, wait a minute. Now there's this mismatch. And so I'm saying at best, though, they would just need to suck back the $10 trillion to be able to get restored. Yeah, but how do they do that? How do they do that if the only mechanism is uh, investors in the United States in a trade deficit? If they're not able to suck back enough dollars, then they're going to have to sell whatever asset is on their balance sheet, which would be their local currency, to buy the dollars to pay down the debt. And therefore, that equilibrium is is all out of whack, which would make the dollar go up in value relative to other currencies. Okay. Again, I'm just going to restate. I, I understand what you're saying. I, I think I just disagree that we're stipulating originally there was an equilibrium. I'm, I'm getting mixed up with my... Okay, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> to go like that, oh, the dollar starts weakening because people don't want to hold it as much. And then I'm just saying... Well, I don't know that the dollar would weaken. I, I think if you have... If this is the dollar demand and this is the amount of dollars... If you decrease the amount of dollars, then the value of the dollar is going to go up. But when we're saying decreasing the amount of dollars, the, the thought experiment is saying because foreigners don't want to hold it as much. Correct. Right. Yeah, so but, they still, saying- but they still have the same amount of demand, Bob, because the demand is coming from the dollar-denominated debt having to be paid off. Okay. So- Just like if you have a mortgage, that, 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 that mortgage is represents demand for dollars. Right. So uh, again, I, I, I guess I would just say that the, the for people who have dollar denominated liabilities yeah, and they need to come up with dollars to pay them off, their demand is what it is. And then if you're saying there's also people who have dollars just as an asset, if their demand drops off, I'm, I'm saying that it's not the total demand is going to be higher. The people who need to get dollars to pay liabilities are still going to have that demand. So right, but the that, demand relative to the supply because the supply now is circulating inside the United States. It's no longer circulating outside the United States. Right. But I guess, so for a given foreigners, one guy literally just has hundred dollar bills under his mattress, just in case. And then as he's reading the newspaper, he's watching Glenn Beck and whatever he's listening <laughs> to Bob Murphy and he thinks George Gammon doesn't get it. Yeah. And he says, you know what? I'm instead of holding hundred dollar bills, why don't I just go get Bitcoin? Okay. And so he gets rid of it. So I'm saying, why wouldn't that just get sucked over into the possession of his countrymen who owes somebody 10,000 US dollars? I'm saying the only reason it would recycle back to the US is if on net, that population didn't want to hold as many dollars as before. Right. So what I, so I, I probably didn't communicate this mm-hmm. effectively, so I apologize. Um, what I'm assuming is that there was no longer that, uh, that desire 
to hold dollars as assets. So if you're someone that let's say you have $500,000 and you no longer want to hold them as assets, but you also have this dollar liability, mm-hmm. right? Likely what you're going to do is you're going to be like, you know what? I might as well just pay this off because I don't want to deal with dollars anymore, but I still right. have this liability. I don't want mm-hmm. it hanging over my head. And I definitely don't want these dollars. So I'm just going to take them and pay off my debt. But what that does, that decreases the amount of dollars because those dollars were lent into existence. So right, I, I think the key component there, as you said, if some guy has a $100 bill, right. but he doesn't have a $100 bill, all he has is $100 worth of commercial bank liabilities that, okay. that, that were the created by lending that, though, them into existence. It's because with your scenario, I was trying to uh, come up with a scenario where I could disjoint because if they're the same guy and, they, and he pays down, he says, you know what, I don't want this $500,000 asset and he pays off the thing then don't they just shrink together and there's no mismatch that the dollar liabilities in that country and the assets go down over time, over time. Yes. Over time. Yes. I just think that initial uh, move down in the amount of dollars that are circulating that makes the dollar go up in value. And, and to your point that over time, then it's going to have this equilibrium where the lower the demand, the lower the supply. And, and that's the argument that I, I try to communicate to all the people that think that uh, if a BRICS currency comes about, that the demand for dollars is going to plummet and therefore the dollar is going to plummet relative to other foreign currencies. I say, no, that's a, you, you're misunderstanding. You're thinking that the 70 trillion of dollars outside the United States it, are, are just green pieces of paper, in which case you would be right. You would be right, but they're not green pieces of paper. They were lent into existence, and that makes all the difference in the world. Okay, so I guess the last thing I'll say is I agree with you that to the extent that we're not talking about $100 bills, but instead we're talking about you know bank-created IOUs that are just offsetting in, in, in the aggregate, that yet if all of a sudden that country wants to basically shift out of dollars and into yuan or gold or Bitcoin or whatever, that those over time would just come down and there's no reason I agree with you that that would make the dollar fall in the foreign exchange markets. I just don't see why it would skyrocket either. So I guess that's the only difference. That only assumes that those dollars that are, uh, that that person just doesn't want, assuming that they're not the ones holding the dollar denominated Mm -hmm. debt, Mm -hmm. that those dollars come back into the United States and therefore they're not circulating with the availability to pay off the debt that represents the demand for those dollars. Yep. So again, we're, <laughs> we're just restating our views that yeah, 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 I agree that, yeah, in the aggregate, like some might cycle into the U.S. first, but to like, oh no, we got to pull it back to Venezuela because we still have, you know, there's all these people who owe dollars to people they need dollars. It, it wouldn't be that on net, the total Venezuelan demand for dollars is higher than it was before everyone wanted to get into Bitcoin. That's all I'm saying that at best, they would just need to suck them back and say, wait a minute, we, we still need those because I got to pay off this, you know, guy over here. And so I don't see why the dollar would be stronger then than it was before. Well, but but, they'd, how, but how would they get those dollars? How would they suck those dollars back out of the United States? They, they'd have to buy them, right? Mm-hmm. And what would they use to buy them? They'd likely, they'd likely use whatever's on their balance sheet. And what's on their balance sheet is the Venezuelan currency. And therefore you're selling Venezuelan currency. So increasing supply that's circulating. And then you're sucking in those dollars to pay off the debt, which decreases the amount of dollars. So, mm-hmm. so the supply demand with that 
particular currency, the, the, the dollar goes up in value. Okay. But if all currencies are doing that, all these uh, different entities, then that's what's making the dollar go up. One of the things. Okay. So you're, I got you. You're saying, are you okay with saying it's fine if, if countries around the world want to get out of the dollar and they want to use Bitcoin is like their inflation hedge, let's call it. You agree the U.S. dollar price of Bitcoin could go way up. You're just saying the dollar still might strengthen against all of their local domestic currencies. Correct. Okay. Yeah. I'm not sure. Though you, you might be right. I would have to think through that, and I'd, I would have to like write stuff on a piece of paper. Yes, <laughs> so and, and that's right. <laughs> and that's what I. If people have to remember that mm -hmm. that I I don't have a job. Like. <laughs> 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 like I'm a complete loser. I don't have a job. I don't do anything. I retired yeah. in 2012. So this is literally all I think about. I just completely geek out on this stuff. Okay. So it should come as just, no just surprise. Just to be clear, I'm not throwing in the towel. I think it might, it might still not skyrocket, but I, now you're, yeah, you're making a very subtle nuanced claim. And I, I would have to think through that. The stuff I was saying earlier doesn't address what the particular situation you have in mind. I, I yeah, it's just simply a rebuttal, Bob, to mm -hmm. to people out there on Twitter that say that if the the world gravitates towards this new brick currency, mm -hmm. that the dollar is just going to instantly become toilet paper. I'm like, <laughs> no, time out, guys. You, you, you're not really understanding the the monetary system. And I think what it boils down to is people not differentiating between dollars that were lent into existence and green pieces of paper. They just see all dollars mm -hmm. as just green pieces of paper or gold coins. Right. Okay. And and therefore, if there was no demand for those, then yeah, they'd pile up and they'd become worthless. Um, but it's just such a different dynamic. And you know, and I, I'll I'll let you go here, Bob. But just uh, one thing that I've also been really wrestling with is um, how you can have a, a situation like um, uh, Argentina. And Japan at the same time, because if you think about it, especially in the beginning stages, mm -hmm. Japan has done everything that Argentina did, right. but they get opposite results. Mm -hmm. How? How can that possibly be? And and this is just a hypothesis. This is something that I'm going to be thinking about a lot because I really want to answer or try to answer that question. And I think it might boil down to the pie chart of money supply. And, and, and what I'm saying here is that that pie chart with Japan, a much higher percentage was lent into existence, where with Argentina, a much higher percent, uh, percentage was actually printed. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it has no intrinsic demand because there's no offsetting liability that would represent future demand for that currency. Uh, that's just a hypothesis, but it's something that I'm going to try to play with moving forward because you've you got to sit there and look at them. And say, well, at the beginning, they did the exact same thing. So why does one lead to hyperinflation and one lead to uh, deflation? It doesn't make any sense. And I understand the argument with, uh, you know, the, the the yen and their uh, trade surplus and them producing a lot of stuff and being a manufacturing-based economy. I, I get all that. But that doesn't impact uh, their domestic economies, M2. Right. Yeah, so I agree with you. I personally would, if I could clone myself, yeah, would study Japan more because, yeah, that's something that I don't feel, I'm not comfortable with that, that that in terms of my framework and how I talk about other things, specifically related to the U.S., I agree. I wish I had a better 
understanding of or confidence in what I think happened with Japan. Cause you're right. Prima facie, they did a lot of stuff that if other countries did it would have resulted in, you know, rapidly rising prices. And yet yeah. over there, they're like, geez, how, how do we, can we please get some price inflation over here? <laughs> you know, like they're trying to make exactly. their prices go up and it, and it's, it's weird. Um, yeah. So yeah. one thing, yeah, people could say like, Oh, credibility and that people trust the bank of Japan and stuff. Whereas, you know, uh, Venezuela or Argentina, it wasn't, and I get that, but, but yeah, you ultimately you wonder, and I think you're right. Certainly if you just told me, okay, we got two countries and, and both of them M2 increased a hundred percent over three years, but in country one, it's because their central bank just started monetizing the federal deficits and like the base money increased and, you know, base is a part of M2 and that's what happened. Or in the other one, it's because, uh, the banks were very uh, excited about the prospects for long-term growth. They saw a lot of good loan demands come yeah, in right. and they just increased. Certainly I would think country two would be in better shape. And that, as far as CPI, um, right. Right. That as you say, partly just because that could unwind on its own. Whereas once the government kind of creates the base money, they're probably not going to suck it back. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I always use the example of, uh, was it 1862 in the legal tender act? When uh, to pay for the Civil War, it, it, it's not like they were creating bank reserves. Right? They were literally printing green pieces of paper uh, to, to buy you know, bullets or whatever it was that they were buying. And that represents dollars that were not lent into existence. Therefore, that's going to likely create massive or a lot more consumer price inflation uh, than, to your point, dollars that were lent uh, from a bank just to... Uh, increase the amount of widgets that a factory is making because they have excess capacity. Yep. Yep. Definitely. Yeah. All right, Bob, I, dude, I've kept you almost <laughs> two hours, man. I, I sincerely apologize. It's just, I, I love geeking out on this stuff and there's just so very few people that are, are, are willing to kind of go through these, these thought experiments. I, I think we have, especially as quote unquote experts, you know, or influencers, mm -hmm. we have a tendency to be very uh, dogmatic and kind of maybe stubborn. Right. And, uh, but you're one of the, I think few people out there that it seems like you really enjoy uh, like kind of thinking through this stuff and thought experiments. And, you know, you've always been open to debating guys like Mosler and, uh, and uh, th this Keynesian fellow and whatnot, I'm sure you'd be more than open to debating Krugman or something like that. So, and I, I think that's what makes you so much better uh, than everyone else. So, so, so thank you for, for being that way. And thank you for being Bob Murphy. And like I told you face to face at our, at Rebel Capitalist Live, um, you are one of the main reasons why I am where I am today. I mean, you've really inspired me to think through things that, and you've taught me so much just indirectly through listening to your podcast and just listening to your videos over the years. So I'm sure I speak for all, you know, 1200 people on the live stream right now and, and thanking you for your contribution. Oh, well, I really appreciate that, George. Thank you. And, and yeah, I, I love this stuff and it's, I'm glad you're not just like towing the party line that you're willing to say things that may alienate some of your fan base because you're going against, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, no, no gold and Bitcoin are good. And, you know, stop the dollar sucks and da, 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 da. So yeah, yeah. Uh, investors have to be realistic and have a good model of 
the financial markets. Otherwise, you're going to lose money, you know, if nothing yeah. else. All right, buddy. Well, we're going to have uh, we got a promise that we'll reconvene here in a couple months to discuss the other uh, bullet points that we had that I can assure the audience was just as fascinating uh, or maybe more so than this conversation that we just had. Yeah, definitely. And thanks again for having me, George. Yeah. And on that note, uh, Merry Christmas, buddy. Happy holidays. And uh, I'm sure we'll go back and forth on Twitter soon. And hopefully we'll see you in 2024. Yes. Likewise. Happy holidays to you. And again, keep up the good work.